In our previous two podcasts, we spoke about how to study for cybersecurity and what topics are most efficient to get started in the industry. In today's podcast, I want to take a deeper dive into why pursue cybersecurity. Be it the great starting salaries or the zero unemployment rate, cybersecurity is one of the most attractive fields in all of the world, and the demand just keeps getting better. So today I want to talk about the reasons why you may want to choose cybersecurity as a career. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Laurel Mountain Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Anderson. And on this podcast, we provide information technology and cybersecurity training for aspiring professionals. If learning technology feels and sounds like a fantastic career path to you, but you're uncertain where to begin, this is the place for you. Podcasts each and every Saturday will come with new content and relevant topics for getting started in the cybersecurity industry. I do want to apologize before we begin. You're likely listening to this podcast on Monday, the 18th of July, which is two days later than I normally like to publish. And unfortunately, we had some thunderstorms here in the area, and it prohibited me from recording for several days. So I do apologize for the delay, but I do hope this episode will be worth your wait. So in today's episode, I want to go over some topics regarding why cybersecurity is a fantastic field to pursue. So our agenda for today will be why cybersecurity is good from a statistical perspective. I want to get into the college education debate. And one of the things I did recommend in a previous podcast is getting a college degree. And there's good reason for that in this field. But I do want to spend some time, particularly for those of you in that age range where you're in the college or pre-college phase of your life, you might be in high school or you're just about to start college. I want to give you some valuable information that you may not be getting from your university or institution of choice. Uh, I also want to get into some of the challenges within the cybersecurity industry. Uh, I think it would be a disservice to sit here and sell you on cybersecurity without telling you some of its pitfalls and some of its challenges, because uh, that's just how things work. It's not always sunshine and rainbows, and I want to give you both sides of the coin. And finally, I want to talk about something you've likely heard about, but I've yet to really breach in these podcasts, and that is the cybersecurity skills gap. What that actually means why it's a bit misleading, and some statistics that correspond with it that were done just this year. So with that said, let's get started on why cybersecurity is a fantastic field from a statistical perspective. From a statistical perspective, it's almost difficult to find a career path that is better than cybersecurity from a numbers vantage point. At present in the United States, cybersecurity has a 0% unemployment rate and has since 2013. There are currently 600,000 jobs in the United States that are unfilled and have gone unfilled each year because of a lack of cybersecurity talent. And that number goes to 1.8 million worldwide. And the projections put that worldwide estimate between 3.5 and 4 million by 2026. So the career paths here are exponentially growing. And despite the fact we are making some headway in getting people involved in the industry, it is still a a net shortfall. We're still short people. 
In 2021, the actual numbers dipped from six to four hundred thousand, but that was a lot. That had a lot to do with the pandemic, not necessarily the actual demand in the industry. And the numbers in 2022 show we're right back to 600k. So we're likely going to continue to have shortfalls. And we're going to talk about the cybersecurity skills gap here uh, at the end of this podcast. And I want to explain what that means and why it's a little bit of a misnomer. But we'll get to that here momentarily. But the bottom line is there is huge demand. Even in, in entry-level roles, there's huge demand. In terms of salary, the average cybersecurity entry-level analyst salary per year is over $70,000 according to ZipRecruiter in 2022. That is a massive value. That is a huge amount of money to get started right out of the gate in college. Very few professions other than selected medical fields and engineering fields offer similar compensation right out of the gate. Now, does that mean you'll get that amount of money you know, everywhere? No, I think that's unfair to say. Bigger cities and, and larger metro areas may even provide a better salary than, than $70,000 a year to start. And other smaller, more rural areas will probably be more in the fifty-five dollars to $65,000 range. Just depends on where you live and the cost of living. From a remote work perspective, cybersecurity is one of the single best work-from-home jobs in the country, perhaps the world. And the reason for that is really simple. The talent pools in the major metro areas are so poached and so thin that oftentimes the only way roles can be filled is if you offer remote work options to folks that aren't in your metro area. And that's getting bigger and bigger. And most companies have kind of embraced the post-pandemic world where we're allowing folks to work through VPN all the time. Uh, truth be told, my current role, I am a 100% remote employee, and I don't have any intentions to go into the office on a regular basis because there's really no need for it. Uh, my previous role, before I took the job I have at the moment, I had a, a hybrid model where I would go into the office maybe once or twice a week, and I would work from home three days a week. And I did that the bulk of the last three years I worked there. And the reason was that because other than working physically in a lab that I had built that needed upkeep and maintenance and patches and what have you, uh, and helping users leverage that lab, there was no reason for me to physically go into the office and the office was a large commute. Uh, I live 62 miles away from the actual location of my company office. So it was a, an hour, 20 minutes, one way and two hours back you know, to get there. So it was a long trip. So it was very beneficial to make that uh, as painless as possible. And, and honestly, it's inefficient to sit in traffic you know, in, in a car where you can't do anything for three plus hours a day. And uh, I did do a lot of learning in that time. I would I've said this to you guys before, but if you haven't heard this, uh, one of the things I recommend when you're studying is if you have a long commute or you drive a lot, um, something that's good if you're an auditory learner in particular is to take YouTube videos and condense them into MP3s to put them on some sort of means to play them, be it a, a phone through Bluetooth or heaven forbid a CD. I, back in the day, you know, 10 plus years ago, I used to record them on CDs and put them in my car that way. But and listen to them and learn as you drive because I had such commutes that it was silly to not leverage that time for something productive. Uh, but that's a, a great way to learn. But uh, nevertheless, my commute these days is zero. I just roll out of bed, get a cup of coffee, you know, do my thing and, and get started. So uh, work from home, very, very possible and encouraged in the cyber field. Uh, the talent pool is just not big enough for everybody. So they're allowing people to work remotely and it's a great benefit to the companies. They're getting more workers and have more candidates available. And it's great for employees because you can live in, you know, Montana and work for a company that's based out of Pittsburgh, right? So that works out great for everybody. 
Another benefit to the cybersecurity industry is it's relatively safe. I mean, you're not dealing with anything physical. Um, I sit too much, to be 100% honest. That's the only danger that I have is that it's very sedentary. You can sit and, you know, write code or, or work on something for hours on end, and it becomes a situation where you have to actually get up and move and walk around and not sit and strain your eyes all day. That's like the biggest challenge in terms of a, a safety issue or ergonomics to the role. Um, one of the guys that works for me presently, uh, he he had a, a situation where he worked construction prior to cybersecurity, and he had a pallet full of roofing shingles fall on his arm. And obviously, he had some some surgeries and some plates put into his arm to accommodate that. But that kind of persuaded him to say, "Wow, uh, this is probably not the safest construction environment that I want to work in. I want to pick something a little less dangerous." And and he's now a very valued member of the cybersecurity community at this point and has done great work. So it's a very safe place uh, to to work and a safe field to be in. And last but not least, at least on this list, is something I'm going to get into here later is cybersecurity is one of a handful of majors. There are a fair amount, but it's not all. But it's one of the majors you can select in a college degree program that presently is very ROI positive. And not only is it ROI positive, it's ROI positive in the first 10 years of you having that degree. That is a big deal. And we'll get into that here momentarily. So those are a long list of the reasons why I think cybersecurity is a fantastic field uh, to be started with, just from a statistical perspective. Uh, In the next section, I want to give you guys kind of the flip side. Uh, It would be unfair of me to only give you the roses and and positives. There are definitely some downsides to the industry and some challenges, and I want to make sure you guys are aware of those too. So one of the things that I like to tell people is that cybersecurity has phenomenal upside, but there are some things that are challenging with the industry. And one of them that I find at least in my opinion is a good thing, but a lot of people struggle with is that the industry constantly changes. There's new tactics, new strategies, and new technologies that get injected into the everyday processes of a cybersecurity engineer or analyst that can change the way that you perform a task or even implement a technology. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing, at least in my opinion, but in a lot of other people's opinion, they wanna learn a skill or or something that they're familiar with and get kind of burnt out of making changes. And that brings me to my second challenge, is burnout is real. Cybersecurity engineers and professionals burn out very quickly for a lot of reasons. One of them are the constant amount of changes and technologies that are required to learn. Another one is that it is a field where you are under some stress. And there are high stress roles in cybersecurity for sure. If you make a very expensive mistake, that can be what they call a resume generating event. Uh, I know a a gentleman that I used to work with who uh, had a colleague who unplugged a network cable Uh, to fix something, and that network cable carried traffic that was financial in nature and cost the company millions of dollars because of unplugging that network cable. So that was what they like to reference as a resume-generating event. So there are some stressful times. You can 
be under the gun with this stuff. It can cost businesses millions of dollars if you make mistakes. So it's a very sensitive challenge and it's things that need to be done right and taken seriously. So there is definite burnout and there is definite high stress. Uh, there's a lot of long hours. Um, the fact that we're shorthanded in the cybersecurity industry makes it so that a lot of times people are filling multiple roles. They're filling multiple hats per se, and that requires extra hours to be worked. And oftentimes those are weird hours. Uh, for example, most large corporations have what they call a change window. And usually change windows are in the middle of the night. They're usually from 10 p.m. to say 6 a.m. the next morning. And the idea is that you would perform any kind of major alterations to your production network during that time. So that if, you know, and you, you make those changes, say at 10, between 10 and 11 or 10 and 12, and then you have somebody from an application team or somebody at the corresponding business validate that whatever change you've implemented functions and works accordingly. And if you have problems, well, you have the rest of the night to fix it. And if you get into the weeds significantly, then you roll back the change and they call it an unsuccessful change or a change with failures, that kind of thing. So those are off peak hours. And sometimes you'll have to work during the day and then work at night to facilitate a change. So there can be long hours and there can be some off hours uh, during your, your involvement in cybersecurity. Uh, and the last one is that this is a thankless job in a lot of ways. Uh, there are days where you will, and certain company cultures are better than others, but there are days where you'll do good work. And it's a kind of a role where if you're doing really good work and doing a good job, nobody notices you. But the minute you do something wrong, everybody does. Uh, a good example of that are firewall engineers. So if you're a network security guy and you put an access control list for you know five years and don't make any mistakes, and you're allowing people to traverse the network in an appropriate way, most people don't even know that you're you're doing your job. You're just kind of putting in ACLs and you are putting those access control lists on and that's allowing you know Johnny from accounting to go from his computer to a network share somewhere to get files and, and write expense reports. But if you break that, then he's mad and then you hear about it, right? So you only get negative feedback in a lot of those kind of roles. So it can be daunting and it can be emotionally draining. And I don't want to sit here and try and sell you a career path that doesn't have any negatives because that would be disingenuous. I don't think any career path in the world that you choose is a perfect marriage of, of all positives and no negatives. So given the lack of staffing we have, given the lack of of qualified professionals to fill roles. This is where we're at at this point. It's high stress. You're working a lot of hours. There's a constant learning curve. Everything changes on a five to 10 year cycle. You're going to get new technologies introduced. You're going to have to learn new things to, to perform your role. And then sometimes that can be learning a lot of new things. Uh, for example, like the whole software defined network space has completely changed computer networking. It is a totally different animal than what most network engineers did in the 2000s to 2010s era, where it was a lot of configuring routers and switches and load balancers and firewalls and that kind of thing. It is a completely different animal now. It's completely changed and it's a lot more code-based and a lot more programming heavy than it is necessarily configuration heavy. So definite changes in the industry and I, I want folks to be aware of that before you jump in. Uh, what I will say is that as a collective, I think the industry is worth the negatives. There are bad things about it. There's a lot of long hours. But if you like what you're doing or you you feel that there's value in what you're doing, uh, that is something to be said. And I think that if you are pursuing a career in this industry, you have to really like technology. You have to be 
a geek, with for lack of a better term. You have to like interacting with this stuff. Um, in 1973, there was a philosopher by the name of Alan Watts. I'm sure nobody's listening is likely familiar with him, but he did have a very, very cool quote that I like to provide people, and it's you have to extrapolate it the right way. But his quote is, sensible people get paid for playing. And that sounds ridiculous, right? And perhaps in 2022, and you you know turn on the internet and go to Twitch, there are a lot of people that are getting paid for playing, right? But the reality of that quote in the 70s was, pick something you like to do, and you'll never really work, right? You'll be doing something you enjoy. And yes, there are days that you know, I hate my job too, right? Like there's days and everybody doesn't enjoy what they're doing, you know, short term. But I think long term, overall, what we do in the cybersecurity industry makes a difference. And it's it's only going to get bigger. And there are more things coming down the path that are going to disrupt technology in the world we live in. And being part of this industry allows you to be on the front lines of that. And I think there's something to be said for that. So those are the positives and negatives of the industry. I wanted to make sure that you guys had, you know, kind of an idea what you're getting yourselves into. Uh, The next section is for those of you that are high school students or are in college. And I want to take a few minutes to break down the college education debate. Uh, There are a lot of people, uh, particularly educators, that are still of the mindset, and, and it's an archaic mindset, that the only way to be successful post high school is to attend college. And while I think for cybersecurity professionals, it's a good investment, I want to take a few minutes to extrapolate why that's not always accurate. In this section of the podcast, I want to speak to those of you who might be in high school, Perhaps you're in your first or second year of college and you haven't declared a major yet, and you're listening to this podcast to see if cybersecurity might be the right path for you, you know, kind of dip your toes in the water. This particular section involves choosing a college major, the actual college education debate as a collective, and why some of the data that you might be getting from high school guidance counselors and college admission advisors may either be obsolete or intentionally misleading. So by and large, there are two factors that make up why people choose a college major. One is aptitude. They're good at something. Uh, Maybe you're a phenomenal piano player and you're a music major because you're a phenomenal piano player. Perhaps you are very, very good at reading and you go into English because you're a very good reader and you like to read stories. Uh, Perhaps you are a very good math student and you go in for an engineering degree because you're good at math. All of those are aptitude-based selections. The other option is love. You love to do something or you love what a job might entail. So for example, let's say you're a pet lover and you go to school and you want to be a veterinarian. So you choose vet as your major or you, you know, your mom was a teacher, your grandmother was a teacher. You love that, that lineage and you go to school because you want to keep that going. So if there was a third thing I would put in, you know, a family tradition, that kind of thing. In both, in some cases, you may get both. Like you absolutely are phenomenal at something and you love to do it. I mean, there are certain people that are just really good and love what they do. Like Tom Brady's a phenomenal quarterback or Sidney Crosby's an amazing hockey player and those guys love what they do. They're absolutely all in invested. They There's no doubt that those guys are, are very passionate about what they do and they're very good at it. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you may love something, but you're not really very good at it. 
Um, I actually really enjoy going to a golf course. I, I like going to golf courses. I find being outside fun and, you know, enjoy the, the, particularly in the late summer, early fall time frame when it's not too hot outside. I kind of like going outside and uh, hitting golf balls, but I suck at it. I'm, I'm so bad. I'm like the worst golfer ever. So, you know, I may be, you know, I like it, but I'm not very good at it. And, and by large, it could be completely the opposite. You may be really good at something, but you detest it. You know, you might, you know, not be interested in it. And when you choose a college major, my recommendation would be to kind of find something that meets both of those. But in the case that they're tied, the phrase I want you to remember is choose a profession over passion. And the reason why I say that is for a handful of reasons. Number one is that student loan debt sucks. It absolutely sucks. There's no other way I can articulate it and get through to you in any other way. The average cost per of attendance for a four-year university per year is $38,000. So if you extrapolate that over four years, that's $152,000 of college costs to get a four-year degree at the average university in the United States. Student loan debt as a collective can't be removed by bankruptcy. It's very, very difficult to get it removed through a disability. And I would not hold my breath for any kind of political solution through student loan forgiveness in the United States. So with those three factors in, in play here, student loan debt is going to hit you and you're going to be forced to pay it. You can put it in forbearance for a certain amount of time, but eventually you will have to pay student loan debt. And if you have a six-figure volume of student loan debt, it is very hard to pay off in that time frame. Usually it's a 10-year window they give you, and the amount of money you'll be paying in student loan payments is absolutely ridiculous. It would rival the average mortgage payment in the United States. That is absurd. That is just not financially feasible for most people right out of the gate from school. The second reason I would highly advocate a profession over passion is that I would choose something that's ROI positive within the first 10 years. And almost explicitly, anything ROI positive in the within the first 10 years of obtaining a bachelor's degree are STEM fields. So I highly advocate for STEM degrees. It doesn't necessarily have to be cybersecurity. You could be engineering, it could be math, but I would absolutely push anyone on the fence who's even mildly good at math or science or technology to seriously consider going to school for it. You won't regret it in terms of your actual uh, financial recompense. You're gonna get a lot of money you know, out of school compared to a lot of other professions. And it's ROI positive very quickly. Uh, there's some other fields that do reasonably well from a return on investment perspective as well. Nurses, teachers, uh, not all teachers, but most teachers, finance folks, uh, those who major in finance usually do very well out of school. Uh, certain business careers do well out of school. And I would even put accountants here too. Uh, those degree programs are usually about 10 to 15 years out return on investment wise. But those are also some very good fields to invest in yourself with a college degree. Anything not on that list is sketchy in terms of how long it's gonna take you working in that profession to make up the amount of money it costs you to get the degree. And as the cost of college goes up, the amount of these professions that it's logical to go get degrees for and make money with goes down. And we've almost hit a point where some of the, te some of the fields that are on the fence there are not ROI positive. Like teachers are right on the fence. If you just go get an education degree, and are making forty-two, $43,000 a year as a teacher, it's hard to advocate that because you can go work at Walmart 
for $15 an hour and you're not spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to go get a degree for a 10,000 to, you know, eight to $10,000 a year difference. I mean, is it worth that long term? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it's hard to advocate for anything otherwise because you're just not going to make enough money out of school with this amount of debt to justify it. And I want to say this in the most tactful way I can. But a four-year degree does not mean you will obtain a job with a living wage once you're finished. So you can go get a four-year degree in something. It has to be something marketable and something in demand. If you go get a four-year degree in psychology, I can't promise you you're going to find a job that pays anything different than you'd have otherwise. Because to work in the psychology field with a living wage requires at least a master's degree and oftentimes a PhD. That's just the way that particular field works. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that go get psychology degrees and they're very disappointed to realize that they don't have any real way to leverage that without going back to school and getting an, a master's degree to actually make enough money to survive. So I say these things to you guys in an effort that, you know, and colleges, let's just be honest, colleges don't have a lot of incentive to tell you these things because they want enrollment. And if they tell you, well, you know, two-thirds of the degree programs we offer have negative ROI for 30 years, that's going to really shy away people from studying humanities or studying music or studying fine art. And there's nothing wrong with those things. If you want to, you know, study something you're really passionate about and you love, that's great. But the challenge you'll have is that once you finish your four-year degree in fine art, that particular field does not have a positive ROI for 30 years. So you're going to have to work a long time to make up the difference for that degree. And if you're not going to stay in the workforce for that amount of time, it's simply not worth the investment. And that's what I'm trying to pitch here. Colleges definitely want enrollment. So they'll teach you what you want to learn. And it makes no difference to them if you make any money from it or not. It doesn't matter to them. They're teaching you. They're offering the education. It's almost equivalent to the guys in the gold rush in the 1850s that were selling shovels and sieves and picks. They don't care if you find gold. They've already made their money. They don't care. If you find gold, good for you. If you don't, eh, doesn't matter to them. They've already made their money. So to review here, STEM degrees are best ROI. They're usually ROI positive within 10 years. And there's some other fields that do reasonably well here too. But college is becoming more and more cost prohibitive because of the amount of tuition it costs and just the overall cost of attendance has made it to a point now where it's questionable uh, that a college degree may or may not be worth it. Uh, you combine that with the fact that there are a lot of trades now that are making significant wages, carpenters and plumbers and electricians and other job roles that don't necessarily require degree programs. They just require some sort of mentorship and you can learn while you work. It's really hard to not advocate for some of these because they're in demand as well and they pay very good living wages right out of the gate. So to be clear, I highly recommend a four-year degree in cybersecurity. It will open doors for you, 100%. But that doesn't mean everyone needs to go to college. So when you hear the college debate and you hear these statistics where people say, yeah, you're going to make 67% more money with a college degree than you will without one, that statistic is accurate, but it's also out of context because it is extrapolating those 25 STEM fields that are kind of carrying the load in conjunction with nurses and finance majors and business majors that are ROI positive. And it's carrying the two thirds of the other degree programs that don't get ROI positive for 25 plus years. So keep that in mind when you're choosing a college major. 
Uh, but in terms of cyber, I highly recommend you get a four-year degree if you have the option available to you. I know not everyone does, but I recommend it. So that's my little spiel about college. Uh, I hope you take that to heart, and, and I'm not trying to slander or you know, disparage anyone. I just want to make sure folks have the right information when they choose a career path. So the final segment here in this podcast this evening will be about the cybersecurity skills gap. And I want to give you guys kind of some clarification of what that actually is and how we can overcome it here in the next five to 10 years. The final topic in today's podcast is the cybersecurity skills gap. And while this issue in and of itself is a bad thing, it does provide those of you who want to enter the cybersecurity industry a unique opportunity to break into the field. So to define the cybersecurity skills gap, it is simply as technology grows, the volume of people capable of keeping that technology safe and functional doesn't meet the market demand. So we have more jobs than we do bodies to fill them and this kind of dichotomy keeps growing in its, its disparity. So if you read numbers on this, you'll get a, a hodgepodge of different values. It's anywhere between 400 and 700,000 jobs in the United States go unfilled each year because there aren't enough bodies to do the work. If you extrapolate that worldwide, it's anywhere between 1.8 and 2.2 million. And the numbers are projected to go into the three and four millions by 2025. So it's a problem that just keeps getting bigger. And it makes sense. You're introducing new technologies and new stacks of, of attack surface into an already saturated plate. So things like cloud computing and the Internet of Things, and now with quantum computing coming around the corner, you're introducing new technologies and, and new problems that we just don't have the people to appropriately man. And as a result, we see a lot of, of breaches and a lot of problems. A lot of cyber hygiene functions don't get taken on appropriately because there just aren't enough bodies to do those functions. We lack cybersecurity awareness training as an industry wholeheartedly, particularly in the small and medium-sized business space, but even in large corporations, we have major problems with that. And just as a whole, it takes longer to implement project technologies in the corporate level because of technical debt and things like lack of staffing or lack of qualified people to bring on to perform job roles. Surveys show that when we present these problems to the marketplace, corporations generally place the burden of training up prospective candidates on the higher education system. And while I think most four-year programs, specifically cybersecurity-related degrees, do give a nice foundational understanding of the cyber industry, it's just impractical to anticipate giving enough skills to young people to have them function as mid-career candidates who have yet to enter the field. They won't have explicit understanding of how the corporate world works, large enterprises in particular. And the more important thing, in my opinion, is they won't have explicit vendor access to solutioning unless those vendors have made a concerted effort to place themselves in that education system. So for example, Cisco's had the Cisco Networking Academy for years. And it was a way that Cisco could get their vendor knowledge into young people at an early spot. And it was a brilliant tactic because Cisco has been the leader in network technology for a long, long time. And that is a primary reason why. 
because a lot of kids that go to community college or even universities will be open and subjected to Cisco routers and switches right in college and will have that experience to extrapolate into the real world. Whereas other firewall vendors and other companies don't necessarily inject themselves so much into that higher education system. So while some vendors do make an effort and, and you'll get training on Windows and Linux and, and a lot of varying vendors in a college environment, you simply won't get all of them. And the challenge too is we're, we're exploding with new technologies. Uh, let me give you an example. So Fortinet did a 2022 skills gap research report recently and they took a survey to about 1,300 cyber leaders all over the world, asking various questions and providing insight on this topic. And one of the questions they asked were, what roles is your organization presently hiring for? And the top three responses were cloud security specialists, SOC analysts, and security admins, which is a very vague term. Like SOC analysts and security administrators are pretty vague, but cloud security specialist is pretty specific. It is those who are hired specifically to secure cloud environments, whereas the other two are very generic. And then when the question was kind of extrapolated upon and when those same industry experts were asked which roles were the most difficult to fill, they got similar responses. Cloud security roles were number one, and then the other two were very generalized. Security operations, which could be essentially anything security related that's very vague, and network security engineers were specifically to WAN defense and firewalls, which is more specific and quite frankly, it's a firewall vendor doing the survey, so I question how much bias is there. But re regardless, the common thread here is that cloud security is both the most commonly asked for role and it's the most difficult to fill. And the big reason for that is it's the newest kid on the block. It is relatively new. It's not like brand spanking new, but it is the least there's the least amount of time to have major knowledge of the vendors to get this solution in. And quite honestly, there are three vendors that kind of dominate the industry. Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. And all three of these vendors have very different nomenclature and vernacular to describe similar or functionally equivalent offerings. And in some corporations, you likely will have all three running around. There's a lot of cloud sprawl in the corporate space today. Everyone wants the new shiny toys. So... When you're looking for cloud security specialists, you're looking for people that need to have expertise in a relatively new discipline. And a lot of times it's very large swaths of information that not everyone has exposure to or means to obtain. So asking higher education companies and, and colleges to provide us mid-career candidates right out of school, I think is unfair. So what is the solution? And this is why I think if you're pursuing cybersecurity right now, the solution falls on corporations. And my position with this, being someone in a hiring role at my job and someone who kind of has walked this walk, is that current cyber leaders have to be willing to be educators and evangelists to the next generation of cyber professionals. Part of the reason why I do this podcast is I feel like I have some reasonably useful knowledge and it's worth my time to pass this information on to help the next generation get started. We clearly have a problem. I mean, this, this cybersecurity skills gap has been going on quite a long time. And a lot of cyber leaders cite it as the single most important challenge that their entities face on a daily basis. So if that is the case, we have a problem. Let's find a solution. And my solution to it is that when I'm hiring for technical roles, I'm going to look for someone who is good foundationally, has a good understanding of cybersecurity foundations, but I don't expect them 
to have the knowledge of my vendor because it's a very niche vendor. It's not something I expect them to even understand or be exposed to, particularly right out of school. And yes, I could go looking for industry experts that have the same knowledge. And it's not like the skill set is unique. There are people that do this in other corporations. But I guess from a business perspective, the whole hurt them, help you mentality where you're taking away a professional from their corporate environment, from a competitor and bringing it on board to you, you know, hurts your competitor, helps you is, you know, from a business perspective, that might be great. But as a cybersecurity industry, it doesn't do anything. You're, you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're not developing new talent and new bodies into the industry that's going to help us grow as a collective. So my experience with this is that the best way to get the cybersecurity skills gap fulfilled is to take risks on young talent that has a good foundational core and that I can teach. You have to be teachable. If you come in and have all the answers or don't seem teachable, I can't really hire you because I don't feel like you'll absorb knowledge. And that is where you guys come in. If you are looking to get started in the industry and you're looking, why should I get into the industry? There has never been a better time for young people who just have a degree out of school or have a handful of certifications to put a resume together, put it out on the internet on Indeed or, or LinkedIn or through maybe even a, a hiring company that it does that looks for contract roles or, or does job placements as headhunters. There's never been a better time to have your resume out there and look for work. There are companies begging for talent and a lot of people, not just myself, but other corporations around the world are figuring this out that we have to be not only cybersecurity leaders and engineers and technicians and architects, but we have to be evangelists and educators. Because if we aren't, there just aren't enough ways for the people we need to get the skills necessary to stop this problem. So there's a lot of reasons why getting into the cybersecurity field is a great decision. There's great starting pay, low unemployment, great from a work from home perspective, there's high starting wages, and you will make a difference in people's lives, even though sometimes they may not be aware of it. Uh, I want to thank you for listening here today. This concludes our podcast for this week. Uh, please stay tuned here next Saturday for another episode. But until then, have a fantastic day, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.